Hey guys, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And today I'm joined by special guest Frank Rotman of QED Investors, who was an early backer of companies like Credit Karma, SoFi, Braintree, and more. So we're super excited to have him be our first guest on the show. Frank, how are you today? I am doing fine. Happy to be here. Yeah, we are excited to have you. There's so much that we can dive into. First off, if anyone does not follow Frank on Twitter at Fintech Junkie, you need to because he started this thing. I think this was sort of like a pandemic project for you where you started doing these Twitter threads about important topics in our space. And they've done that. It's always a hit. I feel like it gets a bunch of retweets, a bunch of likes. So everyone needs to go check that out. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a little bit of a labor of love. Um, it is a pandemic thing. Uh, started because uh, the serendipity of meeting people on business trips just disappeared. And I felt like this was a way of meeting new people. And Twitter is just a great open platform for doing that. So I appreciate everyone who's following. And, you know, I would just uh, appreciate it if people chime in. Getting the conversation going is what it's all about. Yeah, totally. Twitter's a great spot for that, especially now that politics isn't as big of a conversation on Twitter. We can focus on some other things at some points, too. Uh, but speaking of that, one of the most recent ones that I saw was a, a thread about how both public and private markets have seen skyrocketing valuations lately and just what the private side of that means for venture returns going forward. There were some issues in there like, hey, are some of these guys just getting lucky? Like, what are the LPs backing these companies really thinking about um, what what they should expect moving forward? And I really I'd want to dive into that a little bit deeper with you on here, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated topic. And, you know, I think it actually starts with people understanding the asset class we're in, which is, you know, venture backed private companies. Um, it's a much smaller space than people think. So we, we think of it as a giant asset class because we're so close to it. And you see individual outcomes that are gigantic. It can create tons of individual wealth, wealth for VCs, wealth for LPs. Um, but the reality is the asset class is tiny. I mean, you compare it to you know, the private, uh, the public markets, or you compare it to real estate, or you compare it to currency, and it's just tiny. So it's really interesting that over the past handful of years, probably the past six to eight years, um, the size of the asset class has actually gone up by probably a factor of about four. So it went from tiny to four times tiny, you know, so it's much larger. And part of that is because companies were staying private longer. And the area under the curve of, you know, making investment returns in the private markets was just greater. So a piece of what's going on is that the outcomes are much bigger because companies are staying private. Um, but a lot of this also is affected by what's happening in the public markets. Right. So there's no yield anywhere in the world. People are looking for a place to plant money. They look in the public markets and there are fewer logos than there have ever been. So, you know, if you do just a little bit of research and analysis, you see that there are half the number of companies that there used to be at peak in the public markets. It's just a lot of acquisitions, a lot of, you know, mergers that have taken place over the years Some companies have wound down. Um, but investors are looking for growth, you know, in this period where there's no yield anywhere, it's risk on. And, you know, when you're in a risk on mode, going earlier is typically the way to generate returns. You know, look for companies that still have great uh, return potential. And you pair that with the fact that when you ask the question, how high is up? 
you know, it is much higher than ever thought of before. Nobody imagined a few years back that there would be trillion dollar companies. And now there are multiple trillion dollar companies, two trillion dollar companies. Um, and there are real reasons for it, a lot of macro reasons, but also uh, reasons about the companies themselves and what makes them so large. And once people see the potential of hundred billion dollar outcomes, you know, $500 billion outcomes, it kind of ripples its way backwards in the ecosystem all the way to the private markets. So yeah. there, there's a lot going on here. Um, some of it is rational, much of it is irrational, but there's a lot of change taking place. Yeah. And that's a fascinating thing for me is not only is it later stage private companies that are either raising late stage rounds or opting to go public via an IPO or a SPAC that are getting these big jumps in valuation, but on the early stage side, some of these seed companies that are raising their first round, are their Series A is getting preempted. The valuations that we're seeing are just crazy. So it's literally rippling through the whole ecosystem rather than even just the later stage of the private markets. It is. And, you know, I mean, there are, again, so many reasons for this happening. Um, but all of the events put together um, is causing people to say, can I go one stage earlier or two stages earlier? Right. Because if the return, we have to think about this as investing in companies where there are distribution of outcomes and you drive almost all of your returns by the right hand tail of the distribution. Like the average return of an average VC backed company is terrible. So it's not like the asset class as a whole is a good one. Um, it's an asset class where if you can find the companies that are the breakout companies, you have a right-hand tail or, you know, a return profile that is, is literally unlimited. So when you have such a long right-hand tail and people are saying, wait a minute, it is longer than we thought, the outcomes are bigger than we thought, it actually changes what you should be willing to pay if you think that you've found a breakout company. So it, it's a really interesting, um, I guess, ripple effect that's happening in the ecosystem right now where... If you have a back book of companies, which most VC firms do, you're benefiting from the fact that everyone's saying, wow, these companies can be bigger than ever before. So let's value them, you know, as if they've already achieved future results because they're going to be a lot more in the future. And everyone's seeing kind of this uh, increase in valuations for their back books. But at the same time, you have to pay more for, you know, new companies that you're putting into your portfolio. It's similar to real estate. If you're selling a house, you know, into a hot market, you love it. But if you have to buy a house, you're like, what just happened to pricing? And I think we're seeing a lot of that effect in the, the, the private Yeah. What ends up like, okay, so we've established that this is a thing now. What ends up changing that dynamic? Because obviously when you have heated housing markets, eventually that changes and it goes back to being a buyer's market versus a seller's market. What happens in the world or what are some possibilities of what happens in the world where things calm down a little bit? Yeah, well, there are a couple things that could happen. Thing number one is I'll start uh, with what I said before, where it's a small asset class. So when you're dealing with a small asset class, if a lot more money comes pouring into it, this trend could last for a very long time. Right. There's nothing to say it's actually irrational behavior if the outcomes that people are predicting are real. So, you know, if you actually look at the, the big tech companies that are public right now, and if you look at the sum total of their market caps relative to GDP globally, 
it's still something on the order of 10% or maybe 12% or 15%. It's still very small. So if you believe that, you know, multiple hundred billion dollar or trillion dollar companies are going to emerge from the private markets, perfectly rational to have an option on some of that high growth by investing earlier and earlier. And in some ways, and this is the negative part of what's happening, some of the deep pocketed capital see it as an option, right? When they write these early stage checks, that's all it is, is an option on investing in a company that if it breaks out, they'll have pro rata rights to continue to invest more in what could be a breakout winner. So if these giant stage, multi-stage or hedge funds start coming into the private markets and they see this as optionality, this could last a really long time. And, you know, it makes it harder to compete. Um, it makes it in some ways a, a sloppy use of capital because it's being thrown around a lot. Um, but it's not being thrown around equally. And I've gotten a lot of criticism on Twitter for talking about how easy it is to fundraise these days. But for some people, it's not. Both can actually be true at the same time. But for the right class of company, a lot of money is being thrown around. And the question founders now have to ask is, do I take you know, the money at high valuations or do I try to align with partners that can help build a company? Because some of the money is just stock picking. And some of the money is trying to company build. What are the, the types of companies that are seeing it's just so, so easy for them to raise right now? Like give, you don't have to name an exact company, obviously, but like what, is, what are the characteristics of that type of a company? Yeah, you know, I think it starts with a problem statement people just understand really easily. It starts with a solution statement from the company that is also very obvious where there's some trend or something happening or a new technology that exists that makes the solution possible now when it wasn't possible before. I think it's about a team statement that this is the team that has the experience to really pull all the pieces together. And that's where a lot of the criticism comes in the industry because there's some really bad pattern recognition, you know, that's favoring certain types of founder profiles and uh, dismissing some other founder profiles. But I think there is a, a certain type of founding team, you know, that comes together that makes it very easy because they have experience in the space. And I think it's a, a model that people can stare at and say, it's really obvious how you're going to monetize if you win. So if you put all of those things together, there are certain companies that are super hot. Um, we're working on one right now where we put in a bid on the company, a term sheet, at the high end of, of the range that we were comfortable with that would have been, you know, breaking the bank a year ago, you know, for what you would invest in a company at this stage with their results. And they end up, the company has four term sheets and ours is the lowest and the highest is literally double uh, the valuation of our term sheet. Now, we're, we're going to adjust our view of the world. You have to compete in a competitive market will hopefully end up, you know, uh, helping the company and winning the deal because we're the right partner for them. But this is the environment, you know, that we're working with right now. 
It's wild. Um, switching gears entirely, I could talk about this topic with you, River, and that's going to be my answer for basically everything that we, we talk about today. Um, the next is a topic, though, that I never thought I would be discussing with you, Frank Rotman, and that is influencers. And I'm bringing it up to you because one of your portfolio companies, current, um, a uh, startup in the challenger bank space, uses influencers quite a bit because it targets Gen Z and it's just such a good way to reach that demographic these days. What are your thoughts in general? Like, are you surprised that influencers are working so well? Do you think more of your companies should use influencers so well? Like, I have no idea what your thoughts should be on something like this. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, current is uh, just privileged to be part of, you know, in a little way, uh, trying to help guide the company. But, you know, Stuart and, you know, his marketing team are just amazing at finding, you know, ways of scaling the company. And one of the main ways is through influencers. And when they first approached me about this and started to show the results, it was a scratch your head exercise for me because I'm used to scalable, understandable marketing channels like direct mail, you know, which dates me quite a bit, um, you know, Google and Facebook, Instagram, you know, things where there are channels with data attached to it and you can optimize them with you know, creatives and, you know, the, the targeting, you know, to get the best effect out. And the more I learned about how the influencer marketing works, the more I've not only become a fan of it, I actually believe it's a trend that uh, if companies and VCs aren't paying attention to, they're going to completely miss the boat. Um, I actually think that uh, five years from now, if not two years from now, we are going to be talking about influencer marketing the same way we're talking about Google and the same way we're talking about direct mail and the same way we're talking about Facebook. Uh, it's just incredibly interesting, uh, kind of this new surge in people following mini celebrities. Um, and mini celebrity is something that you know, starts from having a niche following, an audience really likes who the is and what they're actually sharing with them, all the way up to some mega influencers who are really celebrities. And what eventually got me comfortable with what's happening is when you think about the top end of the range of celebrity, it's always been there. You've always had people like Michael Jordan selling shoes, right? I mean, like that was something that's always been around. And so many branding campaigns and marketing campaigns relied on celebrity to basically give social proof that the decision that a consumer is making is a good decision. And also the feeling that you're part of something. I mean, that's really what celebrity is about. So you want to be associated with the best basketball player on the face of the planet, right? Whoever that is at the moment, and you'll buy their shoes because you feel like safe, as well as a smart decision. And I think the same thing is happening, but now there's a, a long tail of influencers that have small communities all the way up to mega communities of people that are following them that both want to feel smart for making a decision and they're borrowing the social whoever this person is saying this is a smart thing to do, but also they want to be part of something. And I, I think the biggest uh, companies that are out there saying we have the same functionality as company X, Y, or Z, they might be missing the boat if they don't have the branding, the celebrity, the influencer, um, the feeling behind it. Why, why do you think Cash App has grown so quickly? And I mean, why do you think Current has grown so quickly? 
Why do you think time has grown so quickly? There are so many other companies that have very similar functionality, not the same, every company has different functionality, but they're missing it when it comes to social proof and wanting to be part of something. So again, I, I actually think as the tools start propagating to enable you to connect with influencers, have them share your product, to be able to amplify their voice with ancillary campaigns, this is going to be the way to launch companies. I mean, maybe I should have just become an influencer instead. Just promote, like tested out all these fintech products since I like testing fintech anyways and struck all these deals with these companies, <laughs> grown uh, my Instagram. You, I mean, you, you watch some of the, the videos that, um, the YouTube videos or the TikToks that some of these creators are creating. And like they have followings for a reason. A lot of them are incredibly entertaining. A lot of them are incredibly smart, thoughtful. Um, you know, some aren't and it's just fun, but you know, there's a, a whole community out there. And in countries like China, there are whole schools about teaching people how to be influencers. So th this, this isn't going away anytime soon. If anything, there's a lot of fintech being created to enable the creator economy to become bigger, not smaller. Yeah, I mean, for example, when I, I wrote a piece recently about influencers in the fintech area and how companies like Current, Betterment, and others are leveraging them, I believe there was one video that Current did with a famous YouTuber called David Dobrik that got like 12 million views. Um, Betterment didn't even sponsor something with this person. They just randomly posted a TikTok that got like 6 million views that got them a bunch of signups. So that made them start looking at influencers because they're like, hey, like this is a thing. We should be paying attention to it. Um, so it's, it's crazy what sort of impact the right influencer can have for your market. Like I said, I think we're going to be talking about influencers as a channel for scaling the same way that we talk about other channels. And I don't think it's far in the future. This is not 10 years from now. It's now or two years from now, everyone's going to be talking about it. Final question for you. Uh, what area of fintech is the most exciting to you right now? It can be consumer related. It can be B2B related. It could be real estate. It could be banking, like whatever you pick in fintech, it can work. But what area, what theme are you really diving into right now that gets you super excited about the future? Yeah, it's a it's a very tough question because we have uh, you know, more than a dozen investment professionals at QED and each, each person on the team have two or three different themes that they're chasing. So you can imagine there's a lot of things that we're excited about right now. Um, but personally on my own desk, I'm spending a lot of time at the intersection of uh, prop tech and fintech. A lot, a lot of these intersections are incredibly interesting where there are trends that are playing out in an ecosystem, and then you layer on top of it, you know, any of the major pillars of banking, and that intersection becomes incredibly interesting. Um, you know, so one of the themes within PropTech that I'm spending a lot of time on is the fact that there's a mega trend that's taken place over the past 12 or 13 years where the entire country has been underbuilt from an entry-level you know, uh, single family housing inventory. And, you know, it started with the last recession, not a surprise. It was a housing recession. And, you know, when a bunch of houses went into foreclosure and when valuations plummeted on housing stock, builders weren't lining up to go build new inventory, right? Last thing on their mind was building new inventory. And it took a long time, you know, for this trend to play out. And when the builders started to build again, 
they started to build mid-level and high-level inventory, not entry-level inventory, because it was the best return profile for them. But when you do this for more than a decade, you can imagine what happens around the country when there are new household formations and people are looking for that entry-level inventory. Um, so it just doesn't exist, and you're seeing it with pressure on pricing across you know, pretty much every major area in the country. And in some cities, it's more profound than others. You add to that a trend that I think is only going to make it worse, um, where with a dem-dem-dem configuration in, in uh, the government right now, I think there's very good probability that a $15 an hour minimum wage is going to get passed. We're finally going to address, um, you know, the, a working wage for all Americans, which I think is fantastic. Uh, it's going to put more money in the hands of people who are interested in that entry-level inventory and make them potential homeowners. So you're going to have even more people coming into a market with underbuilt inventory. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, how fintech intersects with prop tech to find solutions, whether they're financing solutions, co-ownership solutions. Um, I have an amazing company that I'm spending time with called Sunday, uh, spelled like the ice cream which is really about rehabilitating old inventory and turning it into entry-level inventory in a fix-and-flip uh, market, which I think is one of the best places to be for the next decade, along with SFR investing. We have a company in that space called Rookstock. Um, so it's an example of a theme that I'm just super interested in because when you have a mega trend that you're investing behind, it makes your life a lot easier. Um, you know, I, I call me a lazy... Uh, investor or a lazy entrepreneur, like I might as well invest and follow megatrends rather than trying to, uh, you know, fight the hard fight. No, I mean, stick to what you're good at and everything too. You guys have so many things that come across your desk that you've got to have these ideas in mind to be able to make decisions efficiently and effectively, you know? Agreed. Somehow we have already been talking for 22 minutes now, Frank, that that flew by. We're going to have to have you come back again to talk about all of these things and other things that are exciting you in the fintech space right now. But that is all for today's episode of Tux Time. Join me again on Thursday when Koki Haziotis of Lasagna Technology, one of our regular guests, will be back with us. Thanks, guys. And thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you.